Again, in the interest of uh, staying on time, we're going to get started with our case study presentations. Um, I'm going to introduce people here at the table. Uh, you already know Gretchen Cole, who is the administrator for our memory care unit at Kendall. Next to her is Mary Hansen, who is one of the LNAs who works on our memory care unit. And Mary, you work the evening shift primarily? Yeah, the, the sundown shift, no. as we call it. Um, <laughs> next to um, Mary is Mike Byers, and he's an LPN at Valley Terrace. And I know he's been there for quite a while because I've seen him at a number of conferences <laughs> over the years. And uh, immediately on my right is Catherine Amaranti, who is the administrator at Valley Terrace, and you've heard things from Barbara about Valley Terrace. So um, Gretchen and Mary are gonna start off with a presentation of a case study they have, and then uh, Nick and Catherine are gonna talk about their case study, and I think what we'll do is wait until the case studies are completed, and then kind of open it up to questions about both, and you can direct your question to um, the situation you'd like to talk about, and I'll try to um, moderate that. So you're on your own there, Gretchen. Well, hello again, everybody. Mary and I um, are gonna be talking to you about a gentleman. Yes? I can. How's that, is that better? Um, Mr. Smith is a married resident with dementia. He lives in the memory care center, but his wife does not. He was a professional in his field and is very articulate. He has always been friendly and has always hugged and greeted people in this way. However, with dementia, now his social behaviors become inappropriate and they're challenging. When, and for example, when he's out with his family, he may think he recognizes somebody in public and will go and will hug and kiss them. Um, and he does not realize that there are personal boundaries and his touching can become uncomfortable. So here are staff challenges. So Mr. Smith will try to hug, kiss, and touch staff in an intimate way. He also initiated um, an intimate relationship with another resident who, had dementia, who has dementia. Um, but then he also ended to choose to end the relationship um, and did not want anything to do with that woman after they had um, been together for a while. Um, one of the challenges that the nursing staff encounter is how to provide care and redirection when Mr. Smith is in an affectionate mood and his spouse visits daily, but there is not an intimate relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes? Does he realize that he had the relationship and then stopped it? Yes. Yes, he does. So he, even after, he's still, he's still friendly with her, though. Still friendly? Yeah. Yes? Is there some reason that Mr. and Mrs. Smith do not have an intimate relationship? That would be the choice of Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith, okay. Yes. She so, visits him twice a day. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the ways, as far as providing care, Mary, do you, what do you find challenging with providing care to him? He likes care. There really isn't anything any challenge. He loves to have a whirlpool bath. Okay. Um, 
and so so doing that type of care is not uh, necessarily a challenge for him for you no but for absolutely not another LNA it might be if he doesn't know them if he doesn't know them yep um, the the intimate relationship as we had talked about before with the other resident was a challenge because mr. Smith is married and um, it but it was a totally different um, experience than the one that um, we did this morning so this particular resident the female felt that mr. Smith was her deceased husband and would call him by name um, and felt that there was a relationship there so I'm gonna so take into account that aspect where we were talking before about consent um, and rights well her children had a hard time with the fact that she was calling this other resident by her spouse's name and feeling that he was her spouse when they were having an intimate relationship they did not feel that um, their mother was really consenting when she thought he was somebody else and then we did have heartbreak when mr. Smith ended that relationship um, very very sad for the other female resident um, the spouse we've had challenges with she understands what the behaviors are but she has made her choices which we can all respect so there is no intimate relationship there that's something that we have to work with um, mr. Smith as far as the affectionate um, touching and kissing it is either he's um, can approach you either like he's your grandfather or he's your father he's your friend but then it can immediately lead into something else where a hug a genuine hug will turn into um, his rubbing his pelvis up against the person that he's hugging or will lead into kissing on the mouth that type of thing so um, Mary is uh, is one of the the finest teammates we have she's been working there for a very long time um, another person though however as we discussed this morning might not have that type of you know com comfort um, and we do have the ability to tell mr. Smith that he's being inappropriate and, and he does back off he does yes he will respond very compliant that. unlike the other couple we talked we about. talked about this morning yep. yeah <coughs> so as I said this morning everybody is an individual and each time we get into a uh, a romance or a relationship it, it all differs on um, the person's background and if they're married family um, all of those things so he seems to he seems to uh, approach staff now more than he does the residents yeah that's true yeah because I think um, would you say he feels safe with staff and has become accustomed to us and maybe that's it yeah. yep but yeah he does he doesn't uh, seek out female residents the way that he did before he comes primarily to the staff to the staff yep but I think for this resident you've also done a good job because I also work with you is he will actually approach some staff and ask permission mm -hmm. to touch or to give someone a hug that's true we have um, some some staff who are not comfortable with it and they have let him know that so he does he has the ability to ask first and when staff tell him no I'm not comfortable with that he will respect that um, 
I will say though that with dementia and um, his progression with that disease, some of his uh, behaviors are changing. So we're not really sure what, um, what we're going to expect, but he would, I think, tell you that he misses having an intimate relationship. Yes? Do you use medication in some, on the spectrum of all medication? You know, there's heavy medicating and light, whatever. But do you use medication with any efficacy with these kinds of situations? So we are responsible for trying everything before. But this particular resident doesn't get any anything like, you know, no. just memory pills. So on a so on a but on a regular basis we have we try um, but they do use medication yeah but it has to be documented right right I have to alert the clinic staff and the interdisciplinary team about what we're seeing and what we've tried and it all has to be charted on what we've tried um, and then our clinic staff if need be could ask for a geriatric um, psych consult. Mm -hmm especially if we were looking at an antipsychotic medication. And so the geriatric psych person would come in, would look at all of our charting, would consult with the clinic, and it's only after that and after lots of communication with the family if it's determined that there is a need for that type of medication. It's prescribed at a low dose, and then we go from there. But I would say that um, Generally, we have very few residents who receive that type of medication. We try a lot of redirection. That first couple, the first person we talked about this morning, he does get medication. Yeah. Yeah. I, just as one of the clinical team members, we are very loath to move to medications yeah. for Sometimes many. Uh, the most important reason is we really understand it's not effective, and um, people behave in certain ways for certain reasons and trying to understand the needs behind those reasons are important. Um, and if we do use medications, it's because people pose a, a threat to other people or themselves. Yes? I, I just I don't know what hops is. Uh, oh, gosh, that sounds me. fun. <laughs> <laughs> we don't use anything near that fun. It has three different things. It is an anti-inflammatory, which might help the brain. Yeah, that's a good idea. The, um, we one time we used estrogen in someone who was very aggressive to staff and needed full care and was grabbing their breasts and grabbing their genitals repeatedly, but was unable to care for himself and needed care. We had a geriatric psych consult. I was not impressed no. that it helped. None at um, all. But we, you know, we tried it. Um, and then the trastone we used for people who were also really, really aggressive. We've also had some pretty good luck with two things. Um, antidepressants when we think they're appropriate, and also appropriate um, pain management. We found often people who are behaving in 
very many different ways. If we really assess and manage their pain, they become, uh, they become happy, alert, engaged people again. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen it so much in the people we, who we ha take care of who have Parkinson's. Um, we've seen it a fair amount in really more severe dementia, sometimes in moderate to severe dementia. Um, I think in particular, um, we've noticed that some people who seem to have more impairment of frontal lobe ability and have less inhibitions. Um, but again, we try to figure out what is it that, what need is driving their behavior and see if we can address that. And like I said, we've had really good luck with things like antidepressant medications when that's appropriate, pain medications when that's appropriate. Um, when we've had people who've been more aggressive and were concerned about their safety and the safety of others, We've used trazodone. We really try to not use any psychotics because we know not only how ineffective they are, but how dangerous they are. And I think in a, a, the case of um, people expressing themselves in a sexual way, we really try to look at you know, what's going on with that individual person. I think that just also some of the other things that we've tried over time is um, if we've had a, a gentleman resident who's really aggressive with female staff, we might try to have a male nursing staff give that person a shower or a bath um, or to provide some form of care to see if, if they respond differently. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. We had um, the opportunity to try that with one gentleman and he, um, in the generation that he grew up in, felt that a male nurse was homosexual and did not, was not comfortable with that. So it actually had the, the opposite effect on what we were hoping um, would happen. So it's a lot of trial and error. Um, and it's, you know, all of you really should know that dementia, as Brenda said, it's, it changes constantly. So. What can work for you on one day isn't necessarily going to work the next day, and that's why communication with not only the team that works with the residents, but with the social services team and the clinic and the nursing staff, everybody um, is working together because social services might have an idea that we haven't even thought of yet that would, that would assist with the situation. Can you elaborate on the staff training that you implemented to redirect what I did was I tried very hard to look at what worked for me um, and because I work with residents a lot one-on-one -on -one, especially with their behaviors and then we would try that um, I recommended to the staff that if he was um, sitting at a table that they make sure that he was not eye level with their chest that they knelt down um, because without realizing it, that was um, was introducing an opportunity, and um, and also we have the we have the ability to be direct with this resident. You don't always have that ability. He has the he has the understanding of knowing when a staff person says no, 
So it was teaching the staff to use their words to remind them that um, every resident is different and that one person with dementia who we might not bring back to reality and say your behavior is inappropriate, um, you know, another resident we can't do that with. So we do a lot of talking. A lot of talking. Um, yeah. and, and sharing ideas of what works. You said that he could differentiate between staff that accepted his hugs. Well, I think it's for staff that he's familiar with. If somebody somebody comes on to the unit that doesn't work there that often, he may get a little bit angry with them. I was just curious because yeah. that, that implies that he's making choices. Oh yeah. So I'm, I mean that he's still, differentiates yeah. from dementia or cognitive decline or judgment. You see what I'm saying? I do. Um, he does have a diagnosis of dementia, mm -hmm. and but yes, there are times where he is able to make make choices. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a very different yep. scenario. He, th this is a gentleman who almost from the first time we met him, we realized that he had a dementia that was quite different yes. than what we normally experienced. Um, because even though he seemed to be very distractible and um, disinhibited, he seemed to still have a lot of the higher cognitive function to kind of process uh, information that a lot of our other patients just couldn't do anymore and he went through a real workup because we weren't sh you know we weren't sure what was going on with him and finally they said yep we think he's got a variant on um, Alzheimer's dementia and um, it's just he's still pretty high functioning so he clearly is kind of mild to moderate range at this point um, but his his the thing that got him really admitted to the to the um, dementia care unit was he could not discriminate things that were safe to do and not safe to do, and so he um, he ended up out in Lime Road a couple of times when nobody know, knew where he was, and it became more of a safety thing. So he's probably one of the more highly cognitively functioning people on our memory care unit. They are, they, they visit, they have short visits. I don't think that it's um, really any different than it has been over years. I've never seen your husband. I've never seen that exchange, no. Yep. Yes. This is clearly a man who, you said his history of all of his life was that he was gregarious open and very friendly. Se knowing that sexual release is a calming thing for most everyone, what about using pornography and masturbation as a, um, what would I call that, as, as a redirection or as a, an adjunct therapy I don't know if his children would go along with that. <laughs> there you go. Do his children need to give him permission? Well, they're pretty involved. They would, not his necessarily his children, but as um, I said earlier, his durable power of attorney yeah. has been activated, um, and I, I really see no reason why we couldn't explore that. Um, that is not. Yep. That's not something that we have explored. Um, 
and I would I, I would actually also bring it back to our interdisciplinary team before I moved ahead with that, so I had <laughs> other other opinions on that. The DPOA is not on the strength. That's correct. Yes. I don't think I don't think you can teach that to anyone. <laughs> 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 what? Well. What we might have to try to teach is where where it occurs. Does he have the ability to socialize with other residents yes. when he chooses? Yes. Yes. There's a comfort level for the staff. There's a comfort level for the wife if she goes into the room and he's he's using uh, pornography and masturbating. I mean, all those things we would take into consideration. And the other aspect that I would look at as far as dementia goes is making sure that this this and the staff would need to too that he's doing it in a private place. We've had challenges before where it's not done in a private place and. Um, where we had two res a male and a female resident who enjoyed um, touching in our common area, and the way that we f we fixed that was to use TV trays um, to <laughs> create distance so that they could still hold hands, but that the inappropriate touching in that particular area could not could not occur. Again, is it their right? You know, that certainly is something that can be argued. However, in our community. And in our common area, that is a public place. So we have lots of families, we have lots of um, visitors who come in, and even though it's their right, we were trying to protect their dignity um, by not allowing that to occur in a public area. Okay. Ready for you. Okay. Um, so our scenario is, there are similarities. For sure, and I, I find it interesting that the first half of the day, we talked a lot about um, consenting relationships between two adults, and it seems like now we've moved into more behavioral problems around um, folks with dementia with varying degrees of sexual, what sometimes we would call acting out. Um, but so I find Earl very fascinating. Um, Barbara, <laughs> Barbara spoke earlier, and I'll try to fill in a little bit about him. So he came to us at, at age 94 with new dementia. So he had some baseline dementia, and then probably some sort of insult or, uh, uh, during a surgery, or he had three different eye surgeries. Not sure exactly what happened, but his cognition declined. Um, severely and suddenly, and then he's actually gotten better, but he still has some baseline um, dementia. Um, the first day that he came to see us, we knew about the pre-existing, he had been talking 
um, sort of openly sexually with caregivers in the home. Um, he had been watching pornography and uh, masturbating, not at home. I, I do wonder, I know that Barbara um, probably disagrees with this, but I wonder if this was not the norm for him that he just kept private before. He didn't have caregivers in his apartment all the time. So we don't know whether he watched pornography or how much he masturbated before this. We just know that now he has an audience, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately for him, not for us. <laughs> so um, the first day I went up to meet him, and I'm a, a sort of a warm, huggy kind of person myself, and I go and I stand next to him and talking to him, and he's rubbing my back, which um, I didn't even notice because it felt good. Um, and all of a sudden I realized he's rubbing my butt. <laughs> and, and it really, he's such a, a gentle, sweet man that it almost didn't faze me. I mean, I know that may sound kind of bizarre, but I, I, all of a sudden I said, oh, look, looky here. <laughs> what have we here? So we thought, okay, we're, we're going to need to sort of keep an eye and do some assessment. And so, you know, we kept him <laughs> um, in eyesight pretty much all the time. Um, and that afternoon, he went to one of our female residents, this is within a dementia um, care area, and started to unbutton her shirt. And the staff intervened immediately and said, you know, that's not appropriate. And the woman said, mind your own business. <laughs> I like it. Okay, so I consider that consent. Um, we allowed that, we did talk to both family members, uh, both um, folks, and, and now that I've been to this conference, I'm wondering if I needed to do that. Um, but I come from old school nursing, which is based on fear um, of repercussions from the state. And um, I don't know, are there any state folks here? Any? <laughs> I just don't want to visit tomorrow, please. Not tomorrow. Next week is fine, but no. But, but so, you know, you sort of um, are sometimes come at this stuff with this fear model. You know, like, oh, am I going to get in trouble for allowing this? Is somebody going to see this in a, in a nursing note? And why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? And, and it's complicated. Um, so we allowed this relationship um, in as much as it was a relationship. Um, they would choose to spend time together, not choose to spend time together. It seemed more often than not that, that she was seeking him out. Um, and at some point it sort of fizzled out. She sort of said, uh, you know, he, he exhausts me or yeah. something like that. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly what not, and it wasn't, there wasn't, not physically, I don't think. Um, and then um, we found that he was searching um, and going to a lot of different female residents um, and also talking to staff. Um, uh, in ways that we would consider inappropriate. But then I also wonder if there's, if I'm naked in the shower and uh, a young woman comes in and I'm a man who's always been attracted to women comes in to help me in the shower, is it really inappropriate for me to say, hey, why don't you wash down here? Or, you know, whatever. It, it, it kind of, I sort of feel like we're setting some of these people up for this. I mean, this is, it's warm, it's, I haven't been touched in a long time, and um, why don't you help me out with some 
something. So, um, sorry. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I, my eyes are really opening up on this topic um, in a good way. Um, so, sorry, I'm losing my, I'm losing the line. So at some point things, we didn't see anything. We did keep an eye on him one-on-one. -on -one. This is the one thing that we thought, um, we do need to protect people who are vulnerable. We certainly didn't see him as predatory or dangerous, but that perception certainly was out there among the family members. But what if? Now this was a mobile, mobile guy, big guy, little bitty women. We have some folks who can really um, end stage dementia and I worried about that. I worried about their ability to say no if they didn't want something. If they were in their apartment in their bed and he went in to um, either get on top of them or even just to come in and sit with them and touch them, I worried about their ability to say yes or no to that. So we, d we kept an eye on them was the, was the key. And that did take a lot of staffing um, in terms of, but all it took was planning actually. Um, we ended up not having to charge the family. We were going to charge one-on-one -on -one care and all that other kind of stuff, and we, we actually never did it. Um, so our care plan included this constant distant supervision. We didn't really want him to feel constrained, but we wanted to keep other people safe. He did have, you know, other women um, sort of coming on to him, you know? And, you know, so it got very complicated because there was the sort of, um, going from person to person where he was looking for anybody who was open and then there was the lady saying come here and going into his room and that family was not um, as they were okay with a friendship and okay with some touching but were made very uncomfortable um, with the thought of anything more sexual happening. The other big thing that we did, which you guys also did, was look at what are we missing? What, is this guy bored? Is he lonely? He just moved here, does he have any friends? And we really amped up the activities. He always played cribbage. We got more people to come in and play cribbage with him. So all of those things, he did, he did go to see a, a psychiatrist um, who started him on uh, Prozac, um, which was the protocol. It, I don't know that it made a huge difference or not, um, but we, it certainly doesn't seem to have had any um, ill effects. Um, what else? Well, I, My sidekick here. <laughs> I do want to say backing up too, when we first started experiencing this, uh, we had weekly meetings with the staff and it was one of the best things that ever happened was being able to have them just voice their own uh, perceptions uh, and their own prejudices and we had a brainstorming session when this first started taking place so because what I saw at the very uh, beginning was and I'm generalizing here but a lot of the younger girls and I'm thinking from 18 to about 24 25 were very intimidated uh, not only by his approaches with them but with the other residents and Catherine is right there was a certain amount of prejudice in that we're, we're, we're putting all these boundaries in place uh, for the guy, and then you'll have the ladies saying, 
come on over here or, or rubbing him on the shoulder or you know and and here's the staff saying that's that's inappropriate and then the lady saying come here so uh it was good the brainstorming session was fantastic because it actually created an atmosphere of empathy for uh for earl so that the staff was now sensitive that to uh, the whole environment and helping us out in that in that respect yeah, I think there was sometimes a presumption of um, intent. We don't always know what someone's intention is. And if you've been uh, raped as a, as a young woman, um, you, a lot of times uh, there may be a presumption that someone is a predator who's really you know, trying to just be friendly or, or kind or affectionate. And I want to say, too, that, and this is just my own uh, viewpoint on this, but he really, I think he was, felt like he was doing these ladies a favor. That, <laughs> and I know that, in some ways. I don't think that, in other words, I don't, in other words, I don't think he was predatory with us. I think he really was just trying to reach out to these ladies. Yeah. Um, because he was very easily redirected when we said, yeah, you might not want to do that. He, he backed right yeah. off. Yeah. So, so we had the same thing sort of in public as opposed to allowing people time in private. Um, my question, and I, maybe I even have it more now, so there was the balance of ascertaining consent of, of women, um, or men for that matter, um, with varying degrees of dementia, so particularly the, the end stage dementias. And I really, that is a question that I have for this group, maybe for Gail, um, you know, is, is just not saying no, does that mean yes? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, and then, you know, again, the, the staff um, feelings, um, I think that was probably the hardest part for me was supporting the staff in something that some of them felt very uncomfortable with and um, helping them to feel okay about it and sort of monitoring their own feelings and, and moving forward. I think that's all I have, unless anybody else wants more uh, questions. Back this guy up a little bit. If you ask, if you go fishing, you keep on fishing till you find the right one. Amen. Uh, so, so just because he goes from one to one to one, mm -hmm. he's just fishing. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other thing is, the verse we mentioned about the women saying, come on, they do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the more something is forbidden. You know, better it works. And you know, his uh, primary care physician, Dr. Stadler, who's wonderful, worked with us from the very beginning, um, said if this was a woman doing this, will we be having this conversation? And I found that a very, very interesting question. Yes. Um, I don't like bringing this up, but 
Well, you know, I think we're coming from a place where the, we wouldn't even be asking the question. You know, there wasn't that long ago, and it's still happening today, where of course not. Of course you're not going to have sex in my nursing home. Um, or you're just, it's just not even thought of. So it really does open a big, beautiful can of worms, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, a part of the, the behavior care plan uh, with him in particular, there was a, a blanket statement that if any part of this is uncomfortable for you, you need to uh, switch with another aide who, who is more adept at that. And let me also say, uh, at that initial meeting, uh, we talked about uh, his emotions too, and I, I kind of stressed, just because we're dealing with this, that doesn't mean that we isolate him. We still want to put our arm around his shoulder and say, hey, how you doing? You know what I mean? Because uh, there's a tendency when someone has behavior problems to back off. And I wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. But I, I agree with you. Uh, this fellow doesn't, he didn't need peri care right. um, or any help in the shower. He just needed help getting into the shower and have a standby yeah. assist. So there wasn't a question about, um, you know, being confused about personal care versus um, sexual attention in well, that respect. Yeah, well, because the whole issue just raises questions of, of you know, abuse. Mm. Um, the possibility of a family member coming in and seeing him touching their relative mm -hmm. and then feeling that this really needs to be reported and investigated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, I can see that there's a really fine line <laughs> that you have to walk, and certainly, you know, an appropriate way to be documenting mm -hmm. any interactions that are observed, so that if something's reported, that there's that there's a pattern that's documented to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Know, of this behavior, this is the plan that's in place. Absolutely. Yes, he always for us is the, you know certain women on their shoulder, and no, mm -hmm. we don't think that's um, sexual in any way. Yeah, and I think that's where conversations 
with you know, and, and now I'm sort of rethinking how we, you know, when we when people are admitted, you know, what kinds of conversations do we have up front about people's um, uh, comfort around topics of sexuality, um, and I think the other thing is, um, sorry, my thought just left my brain. Uh, I don't know. Uh, along that too is, uh, and we brought it up earlier, is, is keeping in close communication with the family. Mm -hmm. And you know, do our best at, at full disclosure with, with the care plans that we have in place. So if we are talking about some restrictions on, on the washing, we'd want to tell the family. Oh, I guess the thing I was going to say, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> is um, uh, involving the ombudsman if you feel comfortable yeah. with that person. I mean, I just, I love um, Nancy Hood. She's not here. Um, but we have a very good working relationship. And I think that sometimes it's really helpful to get an outside look or to go ahead and make a preemptive call to the state and say, I'm not sure if I should report this. This, this is what we have in place. Um, I mean, I know it's, you know, sometimes I like to stay under the radar and not, you know, oh, look what we're, we're doing, just, you know. But I think sometimes it's really appreciated. I did that in a different, a completely different case in a completely different part of the state. And the response that I got between about um, two consenting uh, mildly demented folks was, um, are you giving them enough privacy? was the question from um, uh, licensing and protection. Are you providing her with some lubrication? Are you monitoring for, um, you know, uh, STD, you know, signs and symptoms of STDs? So I was shocked. That was eight years ago. Um, and I was a new administrator, and I was pretty impressed and, and shocked that that was the response. But I was glad it was. I think one of um, the thoughts that our planning committee had about um, this program and making it a very sharing experience is um, it's clear that everybody's in the same place, kind of struggling with um, what should policies be, what kind of education does staff need, um, what kind of education do families and pa you know families and prospective patients need. If we're going to literally take this issue out of the closet, how do we do it appropriately um, so that people get what they need and and there's no harm done? Um, and I think you know the this case is uh, this case and many of the others we've talked about today. Um, there are examples about you know policies that may need to be established in places uh, you know we don't have anything specific. Um, we've been, you know, flying by the seat of our pants, I think, for the last couple of years. Um, what more staff education do we need to do? Um, and, and then, you know, what are the safety issues? How do we address those? So, and I think those issues are coming up and that's... Any other questions or...? I think the biggest... Uh issue with our staff which we dealt with really well is we each come to the table with our own preconceived ideas and our own morals and uh, 
the best way to fight transferring that onto these folks is to talk it over with one another and, and do that brainstorming session with one another so you recognize, hey, you know what, that does make me uncomfortable. And then once you recognize what's uncomfortable for you, you can kind of get past that. <laughs> Any other final comments, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> All right, well, our next phase here is, um, is to just continue to take questions. I, um, Gail is gonna join um, Gretchen and Catherine and myself, and uh, we just wanna make sure we answer as many questions as possible that people have. So when you, um, when you leave here today, you feel better prepared than you did when you came in this morning. Yes. Or they're too sick. They're they're usually too sick, but although some people are never too sick. Yeah. <laughs> but but and it's you know there are concerns around these issues even with acute care with people that have coronary events. They're worried about coming back to sexuality. I think one of the wonderful things today that we've been able to discuss, sort of through Gail's initiative, is that. Sexuality is part of all of us, and we all need to be touched and cared for, no matter where we are on the spectrum of our age. So I think this is really invaluable. The second thing is, I wonder if, because I'm an old nurse, like some of you here, you know, we used to touch our patients. We were taught how to give back rubs and we always touched our patients. That doesn't happen anymore. And these young women and young men that are going into um, LNA work, and it's right now, there are a lot of them, because it's a good place to get a job and the pay is beginning to be better. So do we teach them about their sexuality and the fact that these are things, issues that we're going that we, the caregivers or providers or families, are going to run into. Gail, I'm going to. I, you've been talked a lot about staff uh, training and education that you've been doing. So, um, in Kansas, the uh, certified we call it CNA, Certified Nurse Aid Training. There's nothing about sexuality in that. Um, you know, many students go through high school without having much sex ed, and certainly most of that is clinical in nature and never really addressing their own feelings about their own sexuality. So I think that you're, what you're suggesting is pretty advanced for the types of trainings that are going on right now. But couldn't, couldn't we, as a beginning group, couldn't we have some impact on that? Um, 
there are physicians in the room, there are probably some, maybe some pharmacists. I mean, these are things, these are issues that are important right across the spectrum, truly. Little kids that are in daycare or preschool, Dr. Shum, uh, Governor Shumlin just signed a law about that yesterday and found an important law. And it seems to me that we, we talk about sexual abuse, again, at early age. We haven't talked about really exactly sexual abuse of these people in nursing homes today, but there have been complaints about that. We've all heard those sometime or another. And I worked in a place where a staff member, she was very young, she was wearing a top that was cut down. She was very well endowed. She had those hip hugger kind of pants that they make today that left nothing to the imagination. And she was caring for an older gentleman with Parkinson's who could only do this. He was completely bedridden, had to be fed, had to be toileted, could do nothing. He was accused of grabbing her boobs. Now, unless she leaned over him and into him, I don't see how he could have done anything. The administrator came to that family and said, this man has to leave this nursing home. This was on the front page of the, of, of the Valley News and of the Concord Monitor. It was not so long ago. But it's because of lack of staff training, really. Did anyone address with her how she was dressed? goes back to where we sort of started and that is an assumption that older adults are asexual and if we start from that level then it's easy to see how how people would be surprised if something happened if they would make accusations about um, dirty old men type things um, because you're not expecting to see it and because you don't have an expectation that it's a normal part of the aging process and so that's where the education really needs to begin, is to get over the notion that has been inculturated in all of us that you can't have sex and you shouldn't be thinking about it when you get older. Um, so if, if we could start from square one, I think, I think we'd go a long ways. Yes, ma'am. So I have a practical question. Um, Thank you. 
Can, can I say something anecdotal? My, my mom and dad investigated that, and when he found out how much it cost, that yeah. was the end of the, dis the yeah. discussion was over. You know, I was about going to say the same thing. We've had, because we have, we have an outpatient clinic, um, so we, we take care of older adults who live independently as well as our assisted living and nursing home population. And mm, I don't, I think the people who probably are being prescribed Viagra or Cialis in the nursing home probably headed as they came in the door. And off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody right now. But within the community, there's a regular demand. However, as Medicare D has come online and it's not getting reimbursed at all, uh, the expense of it has um, slowed people down a bit. Um, but I don't think, you know, it's, there have been people who I've talked to uh, and given them a prescription who, like, lost their wife six months ago. They're not in a new relationship, but they ask for the prescription, and I presume they need it. They want to be ready. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I've gotten into discussions with people about their sexual relationships. Sometimes, you know, it takes a leap for me to not be uncomfortable about it. Um, well, you know, one, one struggle I've had with that is for people who've been using it and they're in a relationship and yeah. their sexual partner that I know of, their spouse, yeah. is deteriorating. Right. And I'm their care, the care provider for both. And I want to say, maybe it wouldn't be so good for yourself. Yes. And, and but I feel like that's also not my purview. You, know, yeah. you, you decide when people can have a sexual relationship yeah. based right. on their health. That's, it's also tricky. Yeah. Mm. And I, yeah, I also remember saying to a gentleman, would it be all right if I talked to your wife about this? Because, you know, she's really, she was very ill at this point in time. And when I asked her about it, she said, that's not a problem. And I said, okay, it's not a problem for you, it's not a problem for me. So y you almost never know unless you ask. Um, and sometimes it's the asking part that's kind of scary. As far as I know, there's no spouse and there's no girlfriend. Doesn't have to be. No Doesn't have to be. So it would be basically recreational. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it would be. <laughs> I think I think that he's he's told you what's important to him yeah. for his quality of life, and yeah. it's not the condition of his heart. Yeah, it's it's a different, <laughs> it's a different it's heart. Well, no, I'm being serious. I think that um, he's not. He, his quality of life is has an important part in looking, and you're willing to explore the possibility of Viagra for him. That's you know that's important to him. He you know. I don't, I'll say something inappropriate, but um, <laughs> there's, we look very hard at quality of life, and after reading Gail's book, you know, um, do I still let Mr. Smith give me, rub my shoulders and give me a, a back rub? You bet I do, because he needs touch. Um, when he start, his hand starts creeping down, that's when I grab it, you know. Um, I think in general, there's, there's lots of studies and how the elderly especially lack touch and lack physical intimacy. And um, it's really, you know, it's a total different end of the spectrum, but if I have a resident who has dementia, who's diabetic, we've had many discussions 
um, they do not get the half cup of sugar-free ice cream. You know, if you're gonna give me that and then you're giving Gail a banana split, you better believe I'm gonna want the, the banana split if I've got dementia. And which is more important? Is it more important for me to maintain my sugar when I'm 95 years old or is it more important for my quality of life that I have the banana split? And I, I just saw something different in what you were saying and that he was, he was telling you. Oh, he <laughs> With a group of 40 people. Cliff, <laughs> as a male, we all have to go out of this life somehow. And if you think about that way, Well said. Paul, thanks for saying what we were all thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we've even gotten to the point we've um, we've found the uh, can Canadian website where and directed people toward it uh, because it's clearly something they want and need, and there's no point in um, not helping them Brenda, with what they need. It? It's it's about half. But like, it, what does oh, one Viagra pill cost? Um, anywhere between twenty-five and thirty dollars. Wow, one. Ooh, that's one. worth it. <laughs> 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 well, just think that's what else exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cheap, way cheaper than golf. And I, I understand it lasts quite a while. <laughs> yeah, and when you go to Canada, it's only ten or twelve dollars. So, yeah, we mean. <laughs> Oh, you bet. Um, when I when I was listening to Gail talk, oh, you bet. I want, I can't tell you how many 60, 70 and eighty year old people who have become single after being with a partner for fifty years come in and mention to me that they're going they're they're beginning a sexual relationship, and I say to them, so what precautions are you taking? to protect yourself from sexually transmitted diseases. I had one lady, I thought she was gonna pass out <laughs> off the chair. She says, oh, I'm not sure I wanna do this anymore. Oh. And so we had a conversation about the person who was going to be her partner who had also been in a long-term relationship and I said, well, you two need to talk about this. You need to decide whether you wanna be tested and make sure you're both healthy and, I, and I, I told this woman, I've had the same discussion with my son and my daughter. Um, whether you want to be tested or you just want to take really good precautions to make sure you're not going to get an infection. I said, it's not about birth control anymore, but it is about infection <laughs> yeah. control. But the difference is that your son and your daughter ha have been raised with yeah. an awareness with STDs, with AIDS yeah. being talked about, with condom use being talked about from before they were sexually active. This, that was for sailors, yeah. I think, back in And I had a gentleman say, oh, well, I'm too old for that. And I said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, the, it's the whole thing that has to happen. It's the whole package when people tell you that this is something that's important to them. It, it's, you know, it's starting all over again for many of them.
Well, you had a question earlier. Does um, I wrote it down. Does not saying no mean yes? Yes. And and I was struck by um, in the popular press right now, not saying no does not mean yes for younger people. You know, mm -hmm. so so it, there's there's sort of a paradox going there. You know, how do we Again, we're going back to what is consent and can you show it rather than say it. Um, I think for anybody who doesn't have dementia, no has to mean no and it has to be verbalized. But I, I throw that question back out to you. I, I know that you said something about me answering <laughs> it. And, and I'm saying, I think, again, that's probably an individualized thing. I think it's probably very easy to see Recently I saw, I think it was part of this video that I showed you earlier from the Hebrew home, there was a scenario where the husband um, was coming to visit and the wife no longer recognized him, but he wanted to take privilege of being her husband and she uh, was resisting him. And the staff had to separate them because in that case it is abuse because she does not know that that's her husband. And so in that case, she was demonstrating no in a, in a situation where he had every right for it to be yes. So again, I, it's also individualized. And again, I say to you that it's much easier to make those decisions for people that you know really well. So try to keep hang on to your staff, reduce staff turnover so that those relationships can form. You recognize and understand resident needs really well rather than have to guess them. One thing that we did do was, um, is ask in the moment, do you want to be in this room? Do you, it, are you feeling comfortable right now? And you know, most often it was, yes, please close the door on your way out, you know, so I, but, but there were a couple times when um, Jean said, you know, no, I'm tired, no, I'm done with this for now. So um, with dementia, a lot of it is about the moment and, you know, yeah. One of the points I made earlier, um, and not with you, maybe in a private conversation, was uh, this period of life is what many people see as a series of losses. You know, things vanish from your life one after the other, especially if you have dementia. And so if there's a way of retaining something that's meaningful to you, then we should do everything we can to make that happen. Here, here. Which is, sorry, I'm a social worker, and I think for from my perspective about some of the issues we've talked about today, which is why particularly for a spouse, whose husband, or if, if that's the scenario, may be engaged with another resident, it's the impact of loss, once again, not only of having that spouse go to a different living situation, but trying to help that person to adjust to this um, uh, significant loss already, and then what feels to them uh, the most egregious thing that possibly could happen. Um, what, what I have found in some situations is that uh, expanding life satisfaction in other ways is a helpful thing. Like um, 
that we spoke about, where else do we have support and friendship and connection? Because if that's not going to be found with that spouse again, then there are needs of that bereaved spouse that need to be addressed. Um, that can be quite challenging, but uh, just want to remember that bereaved spouse. But has the same implications when the person who remains independent also has a new relationship with another male or female. I'm not sure how much you heard, um, but that was about how do you support the spouse who, after losing their uh, spouse to dementia care, loses them again to a, another partner? And uh, on the converse, how do you help the person who's in the nursing home and their spouse at home creates another relationship? Um, that truly is a challenge, and staff sometimes quite frequently aren't prepared to, to address that. Um, I think social workers probably have as many skills in that area as any of us do. Um, I, again, I just can't say anything about, but you know, create those relationships. Um, people who care about you don't sue you later either. Resentful yeah. is the word, but <coughs> considering that, thinking that they're being abused. Yeah. And so we have weekly meetings with our hands-on caregivers to provide support around, you know, around a lot of things, support and education around um, you know, difficult behaviors, challenging situations, making sure, and then they give ideas to one another. So sometimes it takes, um, <coughs> excuse me, Sometimes there's something about you. There's a, this residency, something in you that reminds you them of whoever, their first high school girlfriend, and so that there's that. Um, and sometimes just a different caregiver. But I, I think that there is, that if we don't give our staff the skills that they need to do the work that we're asking them to do, the very difficult work, um, the highly skilled work of caring for folks with dementia, with challenging uh, behaviors, then we're really doing a disservice um, to the residents as well. Are they, are they even teaching that in schools these days? I mean, when I went through nursing school, they teach that to me. You know, I mean, they teach LAs and nurses how to cope with that kind of behavior. I don't know. Who's, who's the, I think they're just beginning to teach geriatrics. I'm not sure they're up to sexuality yet. Um, the other thought that comes to mind is um, I think we've spoken about really thinking about the people we care for and whether maybe they have been victims of sexual abuse earlier in their lives. The other thing I want to mention is I think there's a fairly high proportion of people who work in healthcare, um, men and women, who have been subjected to sexual abuse as children. And I think when we then ask them to um, be creative about thinking about sexual behavior in our patients, we're challenging them in a place they're so uncomfortable. They're so uncomfortable that they just, um, 
you know, mo I think the people who get most uncomfortable just leave. Yeah. Um, because we're really asking them to do something they can't do. And I think in the same way we need to respect the feelings of our residents, patients we take care of, we need to really appreciate that there are a lot of people who sit next to us every day and we work with who've had that experience and we have to be able to um, be respectful of their feelings. And sometimes it's hard because you know they aren't gonna sit there and tell you. Um, but I often think when people are most distressed about this kind of behavior, I always wonder. I always wonder, you know, what made them that angry and upset. In the culture change literature, there's two terms. One's called uh, resident-directed, and the other one is called person-centered. And I've always chosen to be person-centered rather than resident-directed because your community only works if the people that live there are honored as well as the residents. Mm -hmm. So you can't go into any communal society and expect that only one part of that society gets all the benefits. So if you're saying this resident is always right, then the staff members can't be right also. So when you're coupling um, what is best for the quality of life for a resident, it only works if the quality of life for staff members is also appropriate. So that's another balancing act that you've got. I, th I think there are some people that have taken the resident direction approach over the top. If you think about like a dorm living, if the person living in the dorm gets to have their way all the time, it's going to affect the other people that live there. So you have to balance the needs and wants and desires of people with all of the people that surround them, and that includes the staff. We have 12 rooms on one floor and six rooms on the upstairs floor, and we're licensed for more than that same sort of situation. Yeah. All you deal with, it seems like there's 100 rooms. Well, yeah. Feels like it sometimes. Yeah, yeah and I think the, the other part is even um, outside of the memory care unit at our place, we have 80 other beds in the health center. Um, and, dementia, yeah, I mean, <laughs> most of the people are in the health center. Some have physical illness, but uh, some have physical illness. A few of them are blind, but the rest of them, their major impairment is losing their cognition. So that, you know, of 100 people in the building, I, I think we easily have 50% of those people who are struggling with memory issues. And then, you know, we always talk about if we expand out to our independent living, that's another huge number of people who are, because there are a lot of people who live independently with dementia, um, some more successfully than others. Um, but a lot of these issues come up with our independent residents as well. Um, so yes, and I think when, when there's issues like this going on, it does make one feel like 10. Sometimes it's the energy um, that it takes is significant. I just what is the staff to patient ratio. 
staff division ratio? At our place, it is, um, we have, uh, sorry, <laughs> one to four on the, it's one to four right now um, with our current load and one to six upstairs. Person intensive work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so it's not just happening yeah. in institutions. Yeah. Yeah. People's brains are percolating more slowly, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, there is some there is some coffee and sugar over here. <laughs> Do we have any final thoughts we want to share? What will you do? What will you do differently? Somebody's going to purchase some Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to prescribe some. <laughs> take you one step further with that. So when you assign one person to each of those um, residents, you give them a title. You call them the advocate, the Milton's advocate or whatever. And, and then you give them duties. So if they need new socks, that aide calls the family members and says, it's time for some new socks for Milton. Um, they set up the doctor's appointments. Um, they create relationships with the family member as well as the resident. I've seen some amazing things happen with that. And if they don't have family members, they become the family. Exactly right. Yeah. Good for me. Well, I'm not. I'm haven't 
I'm not a, a paid sponsor, but I would highly recommend that you get Gail's book. <laughs> um, it's on Amazon. If, if you're talking, if we've all been talking about educating our staff and educating ourselves, um, I think that it's our responsibility to go back um, to where we work and to look at not only um, the challenges, but also the basic human needs, because it's up to us to find a balance on how we do that. Um, so um, whether it's Gail's book or it's, it's something else, I think that if you bring this back and, and train your staff, new staff, and then do education during the year and you know, literally discuss sexuality, because you're gonna have different opinions, different residents, um, different environments that you can easily have this type of discussion on. And if you can discuss sexuality, you can discuss dining practices. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> proper food. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.